oftentimes as people are interpreting Paul, biblical scholars, for example, making commentaries or teaching theological students, they are interpreting Paul through a scholarly framework. Things having to do with Judaism, eschatology, things having to do with salvation, but salvation here is understood in categories that have been established by the long-standing field of theological inquiry. So they're speaking with, re with reference to the, the academy, and that influences what they see, what they focus in on, and the terminology that they uh, use to express it, but also the points of application. A second way that Paul's interpreted is by uh, pastors, and pastors also function within a very narrow bandwidth or a narrow framework of interpretation as they engage the scriptures. That is a congregational application, circumstantial factors driving them, things that they are going through as a local congregational leader that, are, that, be, that set the narrative framework of their interpretive mind as they come to the scripture. The questions they're asking tend to determine, and this is true of all of us all the time, our interpretive framework is the lens through which we experience things, and then that becomes a very narrow bandwidth where data that seems relevant to that is filtered into our consciousness and data that seems irrelevant to that is filtered out. Certain terms like grace, peace, forgiveness, salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, being in Christ, quote gospel, the word gospel itself, these things become associated with this narrow bandwidth. Maybe the worst case scenario is what I, is fire insurance theology, where the gospel be, gets dumbed down to forgiveness of sins and escaping hell when you die, which severely limits the power of the gospel in really transforming a life. Okay, so that said, biblical scholarship with a narrow bandwidth of academia filtering information in and out, pastoral reading of the Bible, filtering information in and out. That said, there's been some changes in our culture that I think are actually helping us get to a place where we might be able to have concepts in our brain or in our corporate consciousness that are really, really helpful. Most of the time when you hear people talk about cultural shifts, it's always toward the negative, how great it used to be and how terrible it is getting now. But I want to point out some shifts that are really helpful. There has been a, a dramatic surge more in, in recent couple, de couple decades, a, a, a big surge towards um, practical psychological knowledge. People are more familiar with basic psychological realities on the common level than they maybe have ever been before. And this is very helpful. It's been more accepted and more easily understood as pastors then speak into the practical relational changes that have happened in this new covenant that, Je that God made with us through Jesus. There's a huge psychological payoff of understanding who you are in Christ. And the psychological payoff is the difference between what it feels like to, be, to live in a relationship of having someone who is a perfectionist constantly judging you and you have to walk on eggshells versus the opposite of that, which is someone who knows and understands and loves you, who accepts you as you are, and that through that relationship, you become a better, a better version of, of you. Now, when I say it, 
plain English like that, some people would say, oh my word, that's just pop culture. No, that's not pop culture. That's what it is to be loved and accepted by a God who doesn't measure you and judge you harshly, but who is merciful and kind and accepting and gracious. See, there, there, this, is, this is what I mean when I say there's this surge in our culture of counseling and psychology words, concepts, that can really help us understand practically what it means to live in the freedom that Christ set us free to walk in. Uh, Galatians 5, chapter 1, it's this massive verse, for, it should be a massive verse for us, where it says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Don't you dare let anyone put you back again under a yoke of slavery. And so one of the questions that I have that I've been thinking about is, it's for freedom that Christ set us free. What is that freedom? And what is it like to live in that freedom? And what is it like to live in the slavery, he says, not to be put back under? What does it feel like to live under law? And what are the practical applications to me in 2019, living here in Seaford, with friendships and family and kids and a marriage? What does it look like for me in relationship to a loving father not to live under the slavery of law? And what does it look like for me as a husband not to live projecting a spirit of law and slavery to my wife and my kids and my friends? Because these are relational realities. My, my suspicion is if you can experience them vertically from the Lord, either as slavery or freedom, grace versus law, then you can probably express them and people can experience me either as projecting the slavery of perfectionistic judgment law or the freedom of grace, mercy, and love. There are relational realities that I'm talking about that are couched in these terms that they, they almost trigger the wrong chemical firings in our brains because of what we are associated, because of what I said earlier about the scholarly and pastoral grid, maybe the churchy grid. The gospel is the word becomes flesh, but then theologians make it word again. So the question I have is, how do we put flesh on these wonderful realities that are ours in Christ? How do we keep the flesh on them? Well, one way is in community, we're meant to learn through experience what we are saying with our verbal confession. What makes that difficult is when there is a wide margin between our written curriculum, what we say with our mouth, and our unwritten curriculum, how we actually behave toward each other. We're meant to learn the meaning of words like forgiveness by experiencing forgiveness, where this is not held against me anymore, even though it was wrong and it hurt someone, it's not being held against me anymore. That's how we learn the meaning of the word, not just through someone explaining the meaning of the word, but through experiencing in community the meaning of the word forgiveness. How do we learn the meaning of mercy? Well, we learn it when we're around someone who's not quick to anger. We're around someone who forgives before we ask. We're around someone who, whose default is kindness, whose default is sympathy, whose default is understanding our weaknesses instead of resenting and being difficult to please. Um, I think that's probably enough for today.